Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. In March 2018, the Oxford philosopher Emiya Srinivasan wrote a provocative essay for the London Review of Books asking, does anyone have the right to sex? Three years later, the essay forms the backbone of a bold new collection that probes the complexity of sex as private and political act, moving beyond the simplicity of yes and no and the hashtags of girl boss feminism. Srinivasan joins the podcast to discuss the ideas that animate the right to sex, whether it's pornography and freedom, rape and racial injustice, punishment and accountability, or pleasure and power. Thanks so much for talking to me, Amiya. Thank you so much for having me. It's really nice to be here. So in your 2018 essay for the LRB, you say that you're writing it to ask questions that no one seemed to be asking at the time about the Elliot Rogers massacre, specifically about the politics of desire. So do the other essays in the book come from a similar place of filling in gaps in contemporary feminist writing? They do. Um, different gaps, though. So what I felt about the Elliot Roger case, and specifically about the commentary uh, as it rolled in, was that it was all saying really important things, right? So feminists wanted to emphasize the way in which Roger was the embodiment of male sexual entitlement, uh, a, an entitlement that was quite spectacularly, dramatically played out in his case, but of course is continuous with um, many more mundane and ordinary social interactions that women have with men. Um, and this was a really important thing to say, not least because in the uh, mainstream media, there were lots of men, especially commentators, who wanted to insist that Roger wasn't actually a misogynist, right? Because he ended up killing more men than women and seemed to also hate men, uh, those men who, on his view, unfairly hoarded sexual access to women. Um, so that was all worth saying, but I, I noticed uh, that feminists didn't want to touch with a barge pole Roger's own claims to having been sexually marginalized because of his ethnicity, so he was mixed race, um, and also because of his lack of typical masculinity. He was shy, he was bad at sports. Um, and, and that spoke to me also to a sort of contradiction that we find within a lot of contemporary third wave, what you might call third wave feminism, where on one hand, we've come down very firmly on the side of those feminists, you know, in the in the sex wars from the 70s and 80s, who wanted to insist on the right to women's sexual agency and sexual pleasure and on the importance of consent as being kind of morally dispositive when it comes to having sex. That's a very important kind of hallmark of third wave feminism, but so is the commitment to intersectionality, the commitment to thinking through the ways in which um, gender oppression interacts with, is inflected by racial domination, ableism, classism, and so on. And there's a tension here because insofar as you want to take seriously the way in which, for example, racism inflects and shapes hierarchies of perceived sexual desirability, one is going to have to do some of that kind of uncomfortable second wave work of going a little bit beyond just the question of consent and thinking about the political formation of desire. 
So that's where that essay came from. And all of the other essays emerged, as you suggest, in a similar sort of way. There was something I felt that wasn't quite being said that I wanted to say. Um, and in many cases, I felt that reaching back to earlier feminist theory could help us say some of the things that I think need to be said now, not because I think we should in any way kind of return to some idealized second wave moment, but because there were forms of analysis um, that were very useful, that remain very useful for thinking about the politics of sex in, in its 21st century incarnation. So I read Judith Butler's review of your book, Congrats, by the way. What a heavyweight. Thank you. <laughs> so um, surreal. <laughs> I was wondering what you thought of her parsing of the right to sex to mean something like, quote, the right to have medical and institutional access to a new sex assignment. And sort of, you know, in setting the table for this discussion, what do you think the connection is between sex as, you know, a category of the body or sex in the sense of sexual acts, sexual practices? Right. So I was using, and I use the notion of the right to sex in a, in a very narrow way. So I'm not talking about people's right to have sex with themselves or people's right to have sex with consenting partners who want to have sex with them. Um, and I also wasn't talking about uh, the right to be the sex that you feel yourself to be or know yourself to be. Um, so in a sense, Butler and I were having like a merely verbal disagreement in that um, she wants to expand that notion of the right to sex and point out the various ways in which um, those those rights, though incipiently recognized in many cases, are very precarious, right? But I don't think the disagreement was merely verbal because I think what Butler was trying to get at was, you know, the importance of recognizing um, just how precarious the right to sex is in that sense for many people. Right. So the right to uh, have sex with other consenting adults who want to have sex with you is intensely precarious for many queer people uh, the world over. The, the right to have um, a non-reproductive sex is uh, profoundly imperiled in, in the US, um, more so now than uh, pretty much ever before. So I, I think Butler's point, as, as I read her, was that, you know, it's important to to keep on the table these different facets of, of the right to sex. But substantively, I, I entirely agree. I agree with her about, you know, how we should think about those rights. I'm really interested in when these two things collide, you know, when feminism butts up against state power, you know, what the relationship is between the right to do certain things and having that enshrined in law or, you know, punishment on the flip side. You bring up the idea that for a lot of the things that feminism is wrestling with in this moment, and honestly, you know, for, for decades, centuries, is that the law is the, the wrong form for the job, whether it's sexual assault, consent, Title IX, banning porn. Can you elaborate more on what you mean? Sure. So for me, this is a lesson one learns from the history of feminist engagement with the law. So if we just look at 20th century feminism in, in the US, and if we begin, you know, in 1968 with the beginnings of the women's liberation movement, what, what we see is an important shift from a feminism that is very anxious and cautious about the invocation of state power, especially carceral power, in the service of feminist justice, to a feminism that becomes very, very comfortable 
with the use of state power and the use of cross-rural power. Now, why does this happen? Well, I think, you know, it's a very complex history, but there's, there is a certain kind of common sense there, right? So it's very easy to think of the law as um, a symbolic representation of, you know, a society's views of, of what's right and wrong. Right. So you think to yourself, well, you know, there's something problematic about uh, men who buy sex. There's something problematic about these exchanges. So what we're going to do is we're going to outlaw sex work because we would rather sex work just not exist. Right. And this is, becomes a kind of symbolic way of, of eradicating sex work or punishing uh, the men who buy sex. Now, the problem with this is that the law specifically in the case of sex work, just doesn't eradicate sex work. Sex work still happens. And the people who are in fact punished, really punished, not symbolically punished, are the women who work in sex work, who are already very often some of the most marginalized women in society, poor women, women with disabilities, um, quote unquote, undocumented women, and so on. So there is a kind of, I think, a certain kind of common sense, um, but deeply problematic, very wrong view of the law as a way of kind of expressing our aspirations for society. The, the preferred view of the law that I have is, is thoroughly realist and pragmatic. So it thinks, well, what are the actual real world effects of any piece of legislation? Are women better off as a result? And if so, which women? Right? Because sometimes the law can be used in a way that benefits some women to the detriment of, of others. So um, one case here that's very important, again, in the history of American feminist uses of the law, relates to domestic violence. So beginning in the 80s, certain feminist activists started advocating for the introduction of mandatory arrest laws, sometimes dual arrest laws. So these are laws that um, ensure that someone will be arrested um, if the police are called out on suspicion of domestic violence. In the case of mandatory arrest laws, if you don't know who is the perpetrator, you, you arrest both of these people. And what's so interesting is that before these laws came into force, Black and Latina feminists predicted that they would disproportionately harm women of color and communities of color. For one reason, it basically empowers the police, uh, already a racialized uh, force, to wield even greater power against men of color. But also, incidents of retaliatory violence, incidents of, of, of men coming back into the home after being imprisoned or after being taken to um, the police station, increase with male joblessness, with poverty, with substance abuse, all structural issues that disproportionately affect communities of color in the US. Now, one might think, um, well, you know, what else are, are we supposed to do if not use uh, the coercive power of the state to deal with domestic violence? Isn't the whole point of feminism that it politicizes the, the private sphere? Well, I mean, one obvious answer to that question is just to think about, well, what makes it the case that poor women and women of color cannot leave abusive partners? And the number one reason is poverty and lack of childcare, lack of social support. Right. So if you really wanted to empower the most vulnerable women to be able to escape domestic violence, what you would offer is a fundamental economic critique that creates feminized poverty, that 
erodes the system of social care such that things like childcare, reproductive labor more broadly are totally privatized. And this is precisely what uh, the early feminists of the women's liberation movement wanted, right? When they were thinking about domestic violence, they were thinking about how do we restructure the nuclear family? How do we rethink and dismantle capitalism? How do we create 24 hour communal childcare um, funded by the state, but not run by the state? 24 hour canteens. How do we um, either pay wages for or industrialize housework, right? This was the kind of utopian reimagining of society that they thought was necessary to respond to violence. And it's it's only in the last few decades, in a sense, that the legal and the carceral in particular has become the kind of commonsensical way of addressing the pathologies of male sexual violence. Yeah, it's a very complicated because the solution is never as neat as just outlawing something. Um, and on the flip side, I mean, you can move over into the arena of pornography and anti-pornography feminists in you know, trying to ban porn, which at this point, you know, unlike in the 1970s, say, when you had to, like, go and get a crusty videotape, you know, you you can't really ban the internet or close the internet in any way. And yet, you know, porn proliferates. And young people, really people of all ages, talk about how, how harmful it is for them. Mm. But the solutions are not necessarily the same, you know, because making people's lives better and healthier would definitely help porn stars have more security, give them more options. But pornography is probably not going to go away. And people are going to have desires that they want to see in pornography that are not necessarily Mm. nice or compatible with like a utopian vision. But we know that, of course, like banning something like quote unquote violent porn always backfires. Yeah. But if we do want to create a world in which pornography isn't negatively affecting people and their sex lives, how do we do it? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because um, this legal habit that you see recurring again and again, but also all over the world of, um, you know, thinking pornography is a problem and therefore banning what is seen as sort of like extreme forms of pornography. So like very explicitly violent pornography or like BDSM or like femdom pornography, things like that. Uh, that to me, that those attempts are not only um, like badly thought, thought out, um, and un- unrealistic in the world of internet porn, but also kind of missing the point of the feminist critique. Because I think the real target of, uh, or the most plausible target of the kind of old school radical feminist critique of pornography is just very mainstream vanilla porn, right? It's the margins which are way more interesting and sexually open. I mean, like practices of consent, for example, in BDSM and BDSM porn are like much more sophisticated than they are in just, you know, humdrum vanilla porn that you get for free on Pornhub, where you don't even see people engaging in acts of consent. But that's the stuff that never actually gets regulated against. Just the the very scripted, stereotypical porn uh, that's straight, cis, white, hairless, you know, dominant guy, submissive woman, it all ends with a cum shot. I mean, this is this is the kind of classic um, pornographic script, which which I think of as as the script that's actually most pernicious. Um, But insofar as legislatures think of certain forms of pornography as pernicious, it's usually uh, stuff that um, 
like the legislators themselves feel like most guilty about watching, whereas they feel very little guilt, I think, or shame about watching that kind of very mainstream um, porn. So I don't want to suggest that decriminalization of, of sex work, um, for which I advocate, is a kind of solution, is any kind of like final or ultimate solution for patriarchy, right? There are more fundamental questions here about the political formation of male desire, right? And I don't think of pornography or prostitution as the source of those things. I think they are very much the symptoms of patriarchal desire. And uh, although I think in the case of pornography, there's maybe a more complex feedback loop. But it's not as if I think the argument for decriminalization rests on the hope that uh, it will thereby like transform the patriarchal formation of desire. I think the argument for decriminalization is simply that it is the thing that makes sex workers best off, right? It's what secures them their labor rights, right? They need to be allowed to unionize. They need to be allowed to quit. They need to be allowed to like sue their boss in court if, if their boss treats them badly. Like that's what they need. And it's the thing that makes um, them better off as workers. But then there is, as you were saying, there's just like this further question. Um, and I don't know what the answer to that is. <laughs> I don't think anyone does, which is why we're still wrestling with questions of bad sex, you know? And mm. this comes up in your essay about talking to your students about pornography. All of them seem to identify porn as one of the reasons they're having bad or uncomfortable sex. And of course, I mean, it's not the only reason we are steeped in culture that creates pernicious roles that make people feel like they don't fit in for whatever reason. So, I mean, this, I think, was a big sticking point, too, for the Me Too movement, because what do you do with something that's like bad sex, but not assault, but still makes people feel bad? You know, how do you if the law is not the answer, like, how do we wrestle with with that? I think it depends on the specific context that we're talking about. I mean, so one example I talk about in my book comes from a case that happened at UMass Amherst. And it involves um, two undergraduates who have this kind of sexual interaction. They're kind of high and a bit drunk and, and they hook up. Um, and the young woman gives the this young man, um, he's, she's giving him a hand job, and she at a certain point just doesn't want to do that anymore. But she keeps on going, not because he tells her to, certainly not because he's forcing her, but because she says in retrospect, she felt like she had to go on. There was this kind of internalized norm, an internalized patriarchal norm that expects women to finish the job. But what ends up happening is she comes out of that interaction and knows that something was wrong. And she then says she was violated and concludes that she was sexually assaulted, that she had non-consensual sex. Now, it depends on what your notion of consent is. If you had an affirmative notion of consent, then she probably wouldn't have consented. But, um, you know, on a kind of normal legal understanding of consent, she, she did consent to that sexual act. And I think the better description of what actually happened is the one that she herself really gives when she's, she's describing the, the texture of the experience where she says, I was, you know, I, I felt like I had to go on. Right. Because that's what like UMass women are expected to do. She says something like that. But because she accuses him of assault, the whole Title IX apparatus um, 
gears up into motion. He gets uh, penalized. Uh, he's sent back home. He has a mental health crisis. He um, isn't allowed in various um, dining halls uh, on campus. I mean, it's 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 very bad. And she herself says, "I don't want him to be like heavily punished." you know, given how sort of gray the interaction was. And it's the kind of case, I mean, it's hard to know what it really looks like, but from when you read about it, it's the kind of case that seems to cry out for some kind of restorative or transformative justice process, right? Rather than a kind of quasi-carceral process, a process where she could sit down and explain to this young man, like, what it was like to be her in that sexual interaction because I suspect he didn't really have much of a clue or maybe he had a slight inkling, but he thought he could set that inkling aside. He didn't have to act on it. And maybe part of the reason he felt like he didn't have to act on it is because of the particular form of sexual training he's had as a young man, which is to say a form of sexual training that encourages men to think of themselves as overpowering women's resistance or interpreting a kind of resistance as coquetry. So I'm not saying that a kind of restorative or transformative justice process um, uh, is always appropriate. It's very hard to scale. It involves a vast amount of resources and usually a vast amount of time and energy on the behalf of women. Um, but I think there are at least some cases in which something something like that would be a more promising approach. Right. And another aspect to that case is that he was a black student and the son of immigrants. And that's a wrinkle that contemporary discussions of Title IX don't really address. Or, you know, hashtag believe women. These institutions that are set up to ostensibly protect women but end up failing a lot of them because Title IX doesn't really care about your class reality. It doesn't really take into account <laughs> that, you know, there is a history in the United States of Black men being accused of assaulting white women. Right. right. Um, and so Title IX, as, as a matter of like the law itself, absolutely doesn't care, right? It is uh, a law that is about sex discrimination as such and nothing else, right? It's not, and the campus institutions that are charged with enforcing and upholding Title IX don't, as a matter of routine, think about other forms of inequality, right? At least it's not part of their formal remit to do that. So it's not even clear how many of them are thinking about, you know, whether complaints um, show racial bias or class bias or bias against immigrants or queerphobia. Right. So someone like Janet Halley, a legal theorist and very strong critic of Title IX, has you know sp spent many years pointing out what she thinks of as a contradiction between, on the one hand, the left's kind of commitment to uh, like queer liberation, immigrant rights and so on. Uh, and on the other hand, um, the left's commitment to this kind of quasi-carceral apparatus that might very well be disproportionately harming queer students, students of color, uh, but probably also like adjunct faculty, other economically precarious members of campuses. And so I think that's something we should be taking uh, very seriously. And here the history of the U.S. is, is really important. And it's not just like a historical thing. If you, if you look on um, the national exoneration 
database, uh, which is an extraordinary thing. You can go case by case. Every person who's been exonerated in the US prison system over the last few decades and you read the cases, you just find, um, you know, very strong racial and class through lines, not just when it comes to sexual assault. That's absolutely true. But when it comes through all forms of conviction, drug conviction, conviction for murder, conviction for sexual assault. And what you also find when you read those cases specifically is that it's the racist criminal justice system that is putting these men wrongly behind bars. Because, yeah, sometimes what you have are false accusations by white women, right? The kind of Emmett Till story. But very often you have um, a real sexual assault. And then the police basically like pin it on just some man of color. They force false confessions. It's very easy to get um, false witness corroboration when it's cross-racial. So white people are very bad at identifying black people. And so often you have is this basically this extremely racist criminal justice system mobilizing against men of color. And I don't think you can think about um, a slogan like believe women or believe her without thinking about that history and the contemporary reality of racial justice. Right. Hashtag believe women, but do you believe Emmett Till's mother, who is also a yes, woman? Yes, right. Exactly. So which right. women are we believing? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think it's all so daunting when we think of what we're up against in terms of how to make the world a better place, period. <laughs> but I really, I really loved this line in your book where you say, to say that a problem is structural does not absolve us from thinking about how we as individuals are implicated in it or what we can and should do about it. So, given all of the vast structural issues we've touched on, I mean, what do you think about every day as you move in the world, trying to make it a better place? Ah, so, um, I mean, I think we should be embracing a wide plural feminism that is based in the struggles of working people, especially working people of color, especially women. I think we should be still making the demands that um, women liberationists, radical women liberationists um, have always been making, right, for the end of uh, imperialism. I mean, I mean, obviously the withdrawal from Afghanistan is hugely relevant here for, um, you know, the dismantling and of capitalism, the recreation of a more democratic and um, an egalitarian economy, uh, the preservation of like the environment, the destruction of which has always disproportionately harmed women and poor women in particular. Um, so I think there's there there are ongoing fights that we just need to join. I don't think we actually need to uh, create the wheel totally anew. I think there are specific problems that. Um, most obviously the climate crisis, which require acts of political imagination that we haven't totally performed yet. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, we have ongoing uh, projects of feminist struggle, especially happening outside of Anglo-America, from which we can draw inspiration and with whom we can be in solidarity. So I'm thinking, for example, of the feminist movements you see in Latin America right now, also in Poland, both of which, interestingly, were uh, were very much triggered by um, authoritarian assaults on women's reproductive rights, right? But which have also opened out into 
much wider radical movements that are anti-capitalist, that are, uh, uh, you know, uh, queer, uh, internationalist, anti-imperialist, and very much um, uh, against environmental degradation. Um, and so there are these things going on. I think we need to make common make common cause. And I think for Anglo-American feminists in particular, it can be really useful to just like look at what's happening elsewhere. It's very easy to think that the US or the UK represents the horizon of possibility. But especially now, that's I think that's not true at all. We have links in the show notes to Amiya Srinivasan's new book, The Right to Sex, Feminism in the 21st Century, as well as the essay in the London Review of Books that started it all. If you're interested in learning more about the origins of criminalizing sex work, I talked about that surprising history on the podcast with historian Scott Stern, so I have a link in the show notes to that conversation, as well as an essay that he later wrote for the magazine in the wake of SESTA-FOSTA, the bill that made it much harder for sex workers to operate on the internet. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Thank you.